You're listening to the Reenactors Corner. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Normandy reenacting because it's 77 years since D Day as of June 2021. Hey everybody, this is Chris here again with Lassa. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. How are you doing today, Lassa? I'm doing great. It's finally raining and cold outside, so I don't sweat like a pig. Cool. Yeah, it's been really hot here, but now it's raining and cold outside here too, which is my favorite weather for this time of year. Before we jump into our topic for today, I did want to thank the uh, Patreon supporters. We really appreciate your help, and uh, we appreciate the support on Patreon, because without it, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you a lot. Yeah, uh, obviously the technical aspects of it cost money, and of course, uh, just it is motivating to know that there are people in the audience who um, care enough to help make it happen and that just makes us want to do more stuff and and more podcasts and try to be as professional and as regular with this thing as we can so thank you absolutely thank you all our patreons big and small the topic for today is going to be about d-day and the normandy campaign we're recording this in the month of june uh the the what was it the 77th anniversary of d-day passed recently is that am i right on that number lassa that is correct, because on the 6th of June, as we all know, the invasion took place. Right. So, you know, I assume that everybody listening knows what we're talking about here. We're talking about the invasion of, you know, France and Western Europe by the allied Anglo-American invasion armies. This is just this. Um, I think it's probably one of the two most commonly recreated uh, things in in reenacting as far as like battle scenarios go um, you've got that at least here in America it's like most events typically have been in the summertime it's a d-day or a Normandy themed event and then in the cold weather it's like a battle of the bulge or maybe like a Hurtgen forest event you know these are the things that are so commonly or have been so commonly recreated by reenactors um and look, D-Day is a super important part of World War II. It's this really major, I'm speaking here from an American perspective, I'm an American, of course, uh, it was just this super important uh, major kind of a turning point in the, uh, the Western Allies' war against Nazi Germany. And I mean, I think... I mean, I'll be honest here. I'm, I've probably talked about this before, but the movie Saving Private Ryan was part of the reason why um, I got interested in World War II reenacting. I had kind of always been a super World War II maniac because of listening to my grandfather talk about his experiences in the Pacific. But um, I think, you know, I'm, I was born in 1979. So when, when Saving Private Ryan came out, I was kind of like exactly the right age almost to just become like totally obsessed with it. I watched it a whole bunch of times and um, I did eventually wind up taking a vacation and going to 
uh, Normandy in the summer of 2000 and I got to go to the invasion beaches and hit the museums and see the cemeteries and it was a really cool experience. Um, that was, I guess that was before I was a reenactor too. That was right before I got started in reenacting. So I had all of this kind of D-Day themed experience that came into play before I even started reenacting. And then of course, um, as a reenactor, I got to participate in all these D-Day enormity themed events, and it was a lot of fun. Um, what about you, Lasse? You're obviously not an American. What's the is D-Day as big of a deal over there, or what? Like where you live? I mean, D-Day is sort of the pop cultural uh, thing. Uh, all World War II interest people um, start out with, I suppose, but. It's not as big here as it is in the U.S. because Norway didn't have that much to do during D-Day, although there were many Norwegians present in uh, several positions. But, um, yeah, because of that, we don't necessarily reenact a lot of D-Day, but my unit is focused on Normandy, as that is where the unit we are portraying were in the summer of 1944. But we also happily do um, other events, too. Uh, I wouldn't say Normandy is our main go-to sort of thing. I remember, like, you know, kind of going back to thinking about how influential D-Day was on me when I was young. Um, the 50th anniversary of D-Day was 1994. I was 15 years old. And I still remember... Um, waking up in the morning and turning on the morning news, the Today Show, and they were doing it live from Normandy. And they had all these vets on. They were talking to people, you know, French civilians. They were talking to American and British servicemen who had participated in the D-Day invasion. And it was just like so, I don't know, it was still so important, you know. And that um, that level of media focus, of course, has has died down and it's never going to come back. I mean, um, most of the veterans ha are dead um, for a lot of young people now. I mean, look, most of the people I think who were alive, who have memories of D-Day, whether they were veterans or not, most of those people are, have probably passed on now for sure. And um, like, it's kind of becoming ancient history. So from a cultural perspective, it's it's lost some of its relevance over time but from a world war ii perspective i think obviously it's still hyper important and uh fundamental to kind of the, the legacy of of world war ii in a way totally um it's also in the broader perspective it's also when germany suddenly had another front to take uh, care of um because the Germans often regarded the Western Front as a sort of a tech war, whereas the Eastern Front was sort of the man or man war, so to say. That's where they lost the manpower, but on the Western Front they lost the, the technical stuff, the te technology. But um, as D-Day happened, the Western Front suddenly became somewhere they also had to focus manpower to. Sure. Um I guess from a reenactment perspective, I can think back on the the D-Day and Normandy-themed events that I've done, kind of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, there's one that stands out in my mind that was really uh, fantastic, and it was actually a, a public display event at a 
coastal fortification that I've mentioned before was a place where we used to do reenactment events. And um, the guy from our group who had come up with the scenario for the event had put in uh, a lot of research into a particular uh, German position um, that was there near the beaches and, and what the morning was of D-Day was like for them. Uh, what unit were stationed at this particular place, um, exactly what time they were awoken, you know, how the, the morning proceeded for them as they had to leave their fortification and, you know, get to the beaches and defend them. Um, and he was able to kind of replicate that feel, you know, we didn't know that we were going to be woken up so early in the morning. Um, but it's like, suddenly, you know, it was it was still dark or just barely dawn. And and we were being woken up and told to uh, get all your gear on and get ready to rush out. And we did that. And it was kind of a cool, uh, sort of a rainy morning. It just felt really realistic. It um, gave some, I don't know, there was like almost because you were awoken so suddenly and someone's yelling at you to put all your gear on, there was a sort of an element of uh, real fear. Obviously nothing compared to the real soldiers, right? I'm not saying that I felt like I was a uh, German soldier in France and that I was about to be fighting for my life in, uh, you know, a life or death struggle, obviously, but you just, there was that feeling, you know, that I'm kind of looking for, um, in reenactment where you get the feeling that like, wow, this is kind of maybe a, a tiny taste or a remote sense of what it might've been like or what the emotions were like or what it would have looked or felt like. It was really cool. It was, uh, it was a cool experience. That actually does sound kind of cool. There was like the counterpoint to that, which I talked about on a previous Halloween episode where we did a D-Day event and there were no GIs who showed up and we had to fight against um, Naval Sea Cadets with, uh, it was like teenage girls, you know, maybe 14-year-old girls with white plastic uh, drill rifles and we had to be defeated by them. It was uh, it was probably my ultimate uh, reenactment disgrace experience. My best Normandy uh, themed event was probably the multi-day event we had in Normandy. It was back in 2017 and I think that was probably my peak Normandy moment. What was that in the month of June? Uh, we reenacted Operation Cobra which okay, was cool. the um, American push to get out of Normandy um, and that was in July so we reenacted uh, around like the 20th of July-ish. You know, having been to Normandy in 2017, Lassa, like... Uh what is it like now? I mean, are are there still traces of, of World War II to be felt there? I mean, I know that there's got to be a tremendous amount of tourism there still to this day, people going there to see the battlefields. Uh, you know, what, what was it like going there? I've also been there before as a, just a tourist, but uh, we did have days before and after the event where we went to all the different areas. And there's still a lot of traces of it. There's museums absolutely everywhere. It seems like every second house has its own little personal museum you can go into. Um, and some of the collections are bad. Some of them are good. Um, we spent way too much in just like museum tickets there. But uh, during the event, some guys also found the lid of a um, transportation case for uh, artillery rounds. Um, that was German. He found it in a bush. So 
I mean, there's still a lot of traces to be found there. That's incredible. There are still a lot of reenactment events that I'm aware of that do D-Day and, and Normandy scenarios. The biggest World War II reenactment event in the United States is the annual uh, D-Day kind of public event at uh, Conneaut, Ohio. That's an event that I have never been to, but it's hugely influential in the American World War II reenactment scene in general. People come from all over the country and I think from all over the world to participate in this uh, battle where it's on one of the Great Lakes and they have landing craft. I think they're operated by the military. I don't really know exactly how it works, but they um, they have like a public battle with spectators where the American reenactors load into these landing crafts and hit the beach and the beach is defended by German reenactors and it gets many, many hundreds of reenactors like a, usually in, in usual years, like I think it's like more than a thousand reenactors go. Like I say, I've never been. A lot of people that I know have gone and, and go every year and would never miss it and um say that even though it's a public display event, it's a lot of fun and you can have realistic experiences there. And from my perspective, I'm interested in attending that event in part because simply because of the number of reenactors who go. I think seeing, um, you know, reenactors operating on that scale kind of has its own realism. You know, most of the events that I go to are very small. There are less than a hundred people, probably less than 50 people at most of the events that I go to. So, so to go to an event where there's hundreds and hundreds of people, that would be, I think that would be really cool for me. It would be kind of a different scope of a thing. And last year, obviously being the, the COVID year, the event didn't happen this year. It is slated to happen and, uh, I hope to be there. And of course, if I go, I'll, I'll tell you guys all about how it was. Yeah, I think that event is probably at the moment the biggest reenactment event in the world don't quote me on it but i think so at least one of the big ones definitely one of the most attended reenactment events in the world for sure but it's also known to have these uh farb elements too i have obviously respect for anybody who coordinates a reenactment effort of that size of, of any size really but especially to put on an event of that level requires a team of very capable people or it or it wouldn't be able to to happen right so and obviously if you're doing an event of that scale you know the larger an event is the more possibility that you're going to have for uh, inaccurate impressions or for some uh, whatever problems to creep in right but you know I think uh, I don't think the the organizers or hosts of that event would would disagree with your statement that you know yeah there there is and has been a, a reputation for um, people who are going to that event who are not super hardcore authenticity oriented and who may have anachronistic issues. I know they're they're doing their best to curb that as much as possible, but. Um, when you've got a thousand people there, let's be honest here, there's not really that many World War II reenactors in the world. And, you know, so to have a thousand of them together, you're really uh, digging and you're, you're going to get some people who are probably not the most serious hobbyists on the planet. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it comes down to like compromise of having such a large event. Because I think the event does look fun, not necessarily for the 
a battle thing, but like for everything that is there. Um, I follow a few, um, what should I say, armchair historians on YouTube as well, and they have been there as well just for the size of it. And that's always impressive seeing people who are not into reenactment, but World War II go to a reenactment event of that size. Sure. I, I saw a video, you probably saw the same one, where there was a historian on YouTube um, who does history content who had previously been very negative and, and dismissive about reenactors and went to D-Day and like put out a video saying, you know, I was wrong and these people are, are serious and they do a good job and there's value in this. I mean, that was pretty cool to see. It was, yeah. We're talking about the same video. Um, it was military history visualized. Every every D-Day event that I've ever done has had has had some kind of authenticity compromise um, because of the scale, because of the fact that we're not really on Omaha Beach or in many cases not on any beach at all or, um, you know, that the that the American airborne troops that I fought against at these events, they didn't really jump out of planes or whatever it is. Right. And at at that point. D-Day event in Conneaut, they also have the added aspect that they have to put on a, a display for the public. So they're trying to show different aspects and uh, show off um, toys, right? The, like vehicles that are interesting to the public. They only have a small area in which to do it. You know, I, I'm sure it's a relatively big area, but you, you've got to have the spectators have to be able to see the stuff. So, for example, um, I know in the past they've had uh, SS units defending the beach, you know, along with other units, which, of course, is not how it really was. Or they had German armor operating on the beach so that the public would be able to see that, you know, see the vehicles, even though in reality there was no German armor on the beach and so on and so forth, you know. And just to reiterate here, I've, I've never been to the event, so I don't I don't really I'm not pretending to be an expert on this event at all. In fact, I don't even really know that much about it, but uh I certainly understand the need to have compromises in order to show the public what they want to see. The other side of this, of course, being, you know, we have an obligation, I think, as reenactors for many reasons to portray history correctly. You know, I think that at any public event, you should try to show it how it really was to to whatever extent that you can. But as I say, there's always going to be some compromises. So it, it comes down to a subjective uh, judgment call. It comes down to decision making on the part of the organizers. And I'm certainly not condemning the organizers of that event for whatever decisions that they make. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And it's interesting you also mention that you have done a few Normandy events that hasn't necessarily been on beaches because that is not necessary. The, the only battles on the beach was a few hours on the morning of the 6th of June. Uh, the rest of sure. D-Day and the entire Normandy campaign was uh, away from the beaches. I think that the you if you look at the Normandy campaign kind of a, as a big picture thing, you you're going out until like the beginning of uh, September 1944 and and the breakout from Normandy that that happened at that time. So um, there is a tremendous amount of different terrain, and I'm sure that you could find a place where there was a battle in a forest in August of 1944 in Normandy. You know, not everything was necessarily fields and hedgerows. Of course, there were cities and uh, towns and uh, suburbs. I mean, there was 
all of this various stuff. So I, I definitely can understand the desire to do like a D-Day event, even if you don't have a beach, even to say, okay, um, we want the, there are Americans that have the the vests or whatever the special landing gear was, you know, the rubberized gas mask bags, and they want to wear that stuff. Or the uh, the paratroopers want to be there, and they want to be in there. I just jumped out of a plane mode. Um, but for me, if I was going to be hosting a Normandy-themed event, I would be looking at the terrain and the land and the, the, the property where I was going to be having the event, and then I would try to do some research to find out is there somewhere that looks like this, that feels like this, that has these same features um, in Normandy? And, you know, what time, what was the date of that engagement? And, you know, what, what the weather might have been like and take all these factors into account and try to um, plan an event that is as close as, as possible, you know, to the actual physical reality at the location, which, which can be hard. Yeah, we have done many... Normandy themed events in the pine forests of Norway and although it hasn't been um, as visually um, accurate as it should have been it has been fun I mean it's also uh, the like how you I mean how you um, approach the event mentally as well has a lot to say about how much fun you're going to have but when I think back about the events that I've done in the past, the Normandy events, it, it occurs to me that, at least in the area of America where I live, that the dominance of Normandy scenarios is a lot less now than it was when I started reenacting. Um, I used to do Normandy-themed or even D-Day-themed events on a yearly basis, and uh in most recent years, I've done a lot more Eastern Front reenacting. Um, the the units, the local GI units here that, um, particularly like the 101st Airborne reenactment unit, that is a unit that, of course, was eager to do D-Day type scenarios. Um, they were huge 20 years ago. They were massive. You got to re- think that the the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers had come out not that long before. There was this huge spike in interest in that specific unit. And so that was very fertile opportunity for recruiting for them. So they had like tons and tons of guys. Um, years later, like I say, the media focus on d-day and normandy here in the united states has lessened and uh, a lot of young people who have come into reenactment kind of have their own uh, interests that are a very wide range of interests maybe they're interested in the eastern front or maybe they're interested in hungarian or finnish or minor you know axis and allies impressions Uh, and so there's sort of less i don't know less focus on D-Day, I don't think it will ever go away. Um, but definitely, I, you know, I don't know what the future holds for reenacting, but I think that it's certainly possible that um, that the D-Day stuff, like I say, it'll never go away, but I think it might continue to sort of recede into the background compared to what it used to be, where there were multiple D-Day and Normandy events every single year. Like especially, I, I remember before I was a reenactor, um, 
reading around on on like the different reenactment sites and like everybody was like oh i want to be 101st airborne because of tito or i want to be ranger i mean because of band of brothers or i want to be a ranger because of saving bright ryan they certainly had a big impression especially that they were so close in time as well i uh talked to some people who were at d-day and who had fought in normandy and these people were sort of minor celebrities in the uh, world war ii scene um because they had participated in this legendary epic battle and that's another thing that's changed i don't i don't know of anybody locally there's nobody that i really see at events or talk to generally speaking who um was in those engagements anymore sadly with the passage of time i wish we had more um allied reenactment units i've mentioned this before but we really don't have many allied reenactment units in norway we have two i think one does early or early war pre-war norwegian and the other does uh usgi but they aren't as active as I would like to, so we haven't had the opportunity to uh, hold any events with them. Otherwise, we need to uh, get uh, units over from either Sweden or Denmark to to play with them. I can only speak really uh, on like the local perspective um, here in New England on this subject, um, but part of me feels like the whole GI side of the hobby has has waned quite a bit in recent years. You know, I see a lot of Soviets at events. I see a lot of Germans at events. I don't see a lot of GIs at events anymore. I used to see tons and tons. Of course, maybe that's my fault. Maybe I'm not going to the right events. Uh, here in Massachusetts, a couple of weekends ago, there were two different World War II public display events that I didn't even know about until I heard about them later from somebody else. So, you know, maybe I'm just totally out of touch with the segment of the World War II reenactment hobby that uh, GIs occupy locally. Um, I, I would love to actually have some GI reenactors on. You know, we we kind of talk about them here on the podcast, but I would love to talk to some people who are sort of plugged into that side of the hobby and hear their perspectives and what, you know, how that has changed. I see some chatter on the internet about it too. I see some people on Facebook talking about GI reenactment as something that has waned in America and the reasons for it. But, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Um, obviously reenactment is kind of a regional thing and there's probably someone hearing this now who's thinking well okay in my area there's five gi reenactment groups with 500 people each and they totally dominate the scene and you know i'd I'd be surprised if that wasn't the case but um where i live i don't think it's the case and uh you know the in i think in 2019 the largest event that i went to was the stalingrad event in ohio which was an eastern front tactical which you know years ago the idea of getting more than 100 people at an Eastern Front event would have seemed crazy to me. And now I feel like these events are uh, are bigger than most of the tacticals that I hear about with GIs. Later on this summer, in or I guess in the beginning of the fall, the beginning of September, I'm going to be going to a tactical in Odessa, New York, that's going to be facing off against the Western Allies. It's like a breakout from Normandy scenario. And... Uh, I was at the Eastern Front version of that event at that same site this spring, and it will be interesting to see how big the numbers are 
for the GIs versus what the numbers were for the Soviets at the uh, at the spring event. Okay, I'll be eager to see. That'll kind of maybe be an indicator of the strength of, of that segment of the hobby coming out of this pandemic that shut everything down for a year. Yeah, I find it um, amusing kind of to see how popular uh, Eastern Front reenactment has become, especially with uh, Russian units. Do you think that has something to do with like popular culture? Has something Eastern Front related been released recently? I mean, no. Uh, I think Generation to, War, probably? Could be. Yeah, that uh, definitely might have a, an influence on it. That's a good point. Um, but I don't know. I just think it's kind of... Seems to be something that has arisen on the internet. Um, came out of, I don't know, social media or what? I'm, I'm not sure. Obviously, the popularity and success of those Stalingrad events that we had here and that were in Ohio for a few years... That put a lot of attention on Soviet reenacting, and I think there were probably a lot of World War II reenactors or 20th century reenactors who put together Soviet kits um, because of that event. Uh, obviously, it, Soviet is a little bit less expensive, or can be, depending on how you do it, it can be less expensive than some other uh, portrayals, World War II soldier portrayals. So there's it has that going for it. Um, I don't know. It's definitely a segment of the hobby that has grown in recent years. Of course, we've talked about that in, in previous episodes as well. Um, and and I think yeah. things things tend to be in cycles. You know, I, I'm not sure that the Eastern Front stuff will continue to grow or to dominate. I could definitely see um, GI reenacting coming back in large numbers. There was a... Uh, there was also a couple of Western Front events at that factory site where the Stalingrad event took place, and those events seem to be well attended and uh, have kind of gone down in history as being realistic events that the part that were a success and that the participants had fun at. So, you know, I could certainly see GI reenacting bouncing back in a big way, and certainly, um, obviously, if if there was another big movie or something, you know, that could that could change the whole dynamic of everything yet again. It's weird how much it has to say, actually, but yeah. Speaking about reenacting in general here, I think um, there are a lot of people who get involved with reenacting and reenact for a long, long time. Certainly, uh, there are still a lot of people who were present at the very first event that I ever went to uh, in 2001 who are still active in the hobby today. Uh, But a lot of people reenact for a shorter time they reenact for maybe two years or four years or five years and then they lose interest it gets boring or um, their life changes or you know they just for whatever reason they don't they don't want to reenact anymore so in order to kind of maintain high levels of participation you can't just count on people who are going to be reenacting for the rest of their lives basically you have to have people who are going to be in that zero to five year sweet spot that a lot of reenactors fall into in terms of being interested in attending events so um you know there kind of has to be something that clearly uh there are certain things particularly successful movies that get people interested in getting started in World War II reenacting. And you really need that stuff because, you know, that that just brings people in. I guess kind of circling back around to D-Day specific stuff, 
uh, one of the things that for me was always a challenge about uh, some of the Normandy and, and D-Day events that we did is that the climate in Normandy is different from the climate where I live. So the t- overnight temperatures um, and the, the low temperatures and even the high temperatures in that part of the world in the summertime are quite a bit lower and more pleasant, in my opinion, than they are here where I live in Massachusetts. We're on a different latitude here. Uh, I think that uh, Boston, the nearest big city to where I live, I think it's on the same latitude as Rome. And so um, Normandy is actually quite a bit more north of where I am. And of course, they have a different weather pattern. And so it just winds up being a lot cooler in the summertime. I went there in August and I wore a sweatshirt the entire time, which would be inconceivable where I live in August. And so you've got this temperature difference and yet you're 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 trying to represent what the soldiers in those battles really wore, which was uh, typically the wool uniform, most typically the wool uniform. And a wool uniform is can be very comfortable when you've got high temperatures in the 70s and overnight temperatures that go into the 50s. Um, but when your high temperature is in the 90s with high humidity, a wool uniform can be incredibly uncomfortable to wear. Um, and of course, there are people who are like, oh, I love wearing wool uniform in the summer. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's great. But the the German army didn't actually usually issue or wear exclusively wool uniforms in areas where temperatures were regularly in the 90s. They had warm weather uniforms for that purpose. And had they invaded... Um, you know, Boston in the summertime, I think they probably would have been wearing something other than a wool uniform. Um, you know, what, what's your take on this? Have you, have you given a lot of thought about that? Is that even a concern for you, this kind of differential between Normandy weather and, and weather in other places where people reenact? Well, it certainly is. I mean, Norway is quite a lot further north than, um, than Normandy. And I remember when, like, whenever there's really warm weather as you say like up in the 90s it's like unbearable uh literally and i remember when we reenacted in normandy in july we had a little bit of overcast and a little bit of rain drizzle but on the sunny days it was extremely warm when like i when before and after the event i had uh, my shorts and a t-shirt on uh, because it it is it was extremely warm for me but during the event we had the wool uniform on i roll up the sleeves and unbutton an extra button uh from the from the collar but it is bearable because the wool uniform breathes so well but uh no i i found it very warm indeed for me a lot of the time when i am looking at a summer event for the area where i live I'm probably not thinking about Normandy. I'm probably thinking about um, the Southern Front or Southern Russia or, you know, areas where soldiers wore tropical or commonly wore HBT uniforms in the summertime um, because that will allow me to be more comfortable. I have, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, that great event that we did that was a public display where we were woken up and told to... Um, get your gear on and get into your positions we did wool uniforms and it was hot you know it was uh 
It wasn't like we were playing basketball, right? We were just in static positions mostly, so it was all right. But uh, I don't know. I think that, I mean, that D-Day event in August, they I think they require people in a lot of situations to wear wool uniforms. And I understand that from a historical realism perspective. But at the same time, um, I think it's quite a bit warmer in uh, in August in Ohio than it typically is in June, in early June in France. Um, so you're, you're asking people to, to kind of suffer through something that's maybe different than maybe more, uh, challenging weather wise than what the real soldiers had to face at that time. Absolutely. I, um, I think it's important to plan events for the weather, um, like not down to like the exact fire height, but, um, you know, just make it as believable as possible we have the same problem when we plan our dense events during winter because we have a lot of snow but during the ardennes there weren't really any snow until after uh, new year's uh, into 1945 so that means we can basically only reenact late war or late battle uh, of the bulge uh, events that's interesting so, Lasse, you guys focus uh, on some level on Normandy impressions. How do you go about um, kind of dialing into the Normandy impression for the German side? What's what's your thought process on that? Well, I mean, first we have to sort of like look at when during um, the Normandy campaign we're looking at, because as you said, it, it goes from like early June till early September. Um and in like the first week of the battle, you have um, what should I say, rear unit, second line, uh, garrison units, um, like badly equipped uh, German units. But uh, as the um, as the battles went on, you uh, the Germans got reinforcements from uh, better equipped uh, units. So that that's like the first thing to look at because. If you're looking at like just beyond the beaches, uh, mid-June, you're looking at a very different sort of uh, German impression than, um, let's say, Operation Cobra or Operation Epsom or something like that, or even the Falais pocket um, battles. Do you think there are things that reenactors maybe do wrong when they're approaching, um, you know, Normandy impressions in general? I mean, do you think that there's stuff that's overrepresented or underrepresented or do you think that maybe people have some misconceptions about it yeah i think the uh layer division is sort of over uh represented and this is like the um sort of like a training division that was um more or less fully equipped with uh, camouflage which is sort of rare for a hair unit and i see a lot of reenactors who want to do that specific unit because of the camouflage i think that is uh, that is uh, very uh, overrepresented camouflage is kind of a controversial subject on its own you know with a lot of like you say a lot of reenactors want to wear it it was for most german army units it was only worn in a limited way by a limited number of people you know uh we could probably do a whole episode on that at some point um <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's like the one thing with Normandy I find um, like not necessarily wrong, but in the way it's represented, it can easily uh, become wrong because it's so overrepresented. 
And I mean, you know, to be fair, there were some units that had camouflage garments and used them extensively, you know, to, to recreate some units. I think you, you need that. Uh, but of course, then, like you say, the question becomes, well, are people choosing to do these units so that they can wear the camouflage, you know, and maybe some are, some aren't, I don't know. I can be wrong on this, but I think the Lear uh, division um, fought against British um, and therefore it gets kind of wrong that everybody focuses on the Lear division, but also fighting the USGIs. Sure. Well, uh, here in America, there just aren't that many British reenactors, um, you know, so that's something that that's, doesn't maybe get enough attention or... Uh, obviously here in America, we're going to have a kind of America centric view of this battle in which uh, Americans fought together with people from other armies, other nations. During the uh, Normandy campaign, it was the British who met the most resistance as well. They got all the, uh, what you say, like the crack as as panzer divisions against them. Um, whereas the uh, Americans didn't necessarily have that much resistance so to say because the um americans were also the ones who managed to like break out of the uh, beachhead um the most while the british couldn't even get to can until you know like late july yeah and i mean if you are in can or call as they say and you take the bus to the beachhead it's or to the beach is like merely a 30 minute bus ride the distance is ridiculously short, but the British uh, struggled there for, for uh, nearly two months. Well, I'm sure there was, you know, I'm not an expert on this uh, campaign at all. Uh, I don't want to disparage the fighting spirit of the British Army. I mean, I'm sure there was some reasons for that, right? Yeah. Um, the thing is that the British uh, did get uh, a lot of resistance uh, from several uh, panzer divisions, including uh, some of the heavy tank units too. Uh, the Americans... That's interesting. I don't think, I may be wrong, but I don't think the Americans uh, encountered a single Tiger until the Falay pocket um, because the German, the Americans met mostly uh, infantry units, panzer grenadier units, um, and stuff like that. Uh, and also uh, paratroopers like the Falchimiega, but they didn't meet as much uh, panzer divisions as the British did. I know that the the D-Day event in Ohio is trying to incorporate like foreign volunteers for the German impressions as well, because there were um, there were units comprised of foreign volunteers that were part of the occupation forces on the Atlantic Wall, and when the um, when the allies invaded, they did encounter foreign volunteer personnel. I think it's interesting to try to incorporate that into the, um, into the portrayal because it's a side of things that we haven't really seen typically very much in reenacting. I think that's a, a cool initiative on their part. Yeah, that is cool. There were certainly quite a few uh, volunteers or also forced conscripts um, the Saving Pride Ryan has a little bit on that. Um, if you remember the scene where they jump, where they finally get on top of the beach, um, on top of, you know, behind, behind the bunkers, there's two Germans jumping out and having their hands up and um, yelling to the Americans, but they get shot and they, um, the Americans joke that they said, uh, look, I washed my hands. 
It's a very famous uh, little sequence, but uh, the German soldiers are actually talking uh, uh, like they're Czech soldiers. They're uh, speaking in Czech language, and they're saying that they are volunteers and they're forced there. Wow, that's cool. It is a, it's a very it's a very nice little um, Easter egg from from Spielberg. It's a cool detail they put in. I, I really enjoy that movie. I rewatched part of it again recently, having not seen it for a long time, and uh, I think it stands the test of time. I do. I, I, there are some other movies from that time that I think, I don't know, feel kind of dated. Uh, Saving Private Ryan still feels kind of fresh to me when I watch it. I think it's it's still one of my favorite World War II movies. Yeah, I watched it completely um, two, three months ago, um, and it, it's a good movie. I have my own opinions on the final battle, but I mean, it, all in all, it's a good it's a good movie. Sure. Well, it's like anything else; they have to take they have to take some liberties. You know, it's. Um, I mean, it's a Hollywood movie, and it's I it's kind of this is parallel to what we were talking about before with uh, with like uh, reenactments that there just have to be compromises. That's how it is. Absolutely. And I, I accept that. And I know that um, these things, both the uh, public battles, generally speaking, and Hollywood movies are made for like a general audience and not necessarily a uh, specialized audience of hyper World War II enthusiasts like, like me and you. <laughs> that is true. I have. It's a long while since I cared about inac- inaccuracies in uh, kit and stuff in movies. But sure. Just, even the filmmaking critic in me uh, is sort of not enjoying the last battle as much as I would like to. Okay, cool. But that but that could be another episode, I guess. <laughs> You're a snob lesson. I am, I am. I I know. But there's there's no helping that. I've been getting a lot of really nice messages from listeners of the show and also from some of the Patreon supporters. And some people have some ideas about uh, future episodes of the show, uh, things that they'd like to hear us discuss. Um, One of the ideas that was floated was about maybe doing... Uh, an episode where we talk about like negative perceptions of World War II reenacting and World War II German reenacting in particular. Um, you know, it's I, I kind of like to try to keep it positive, but I think it might be interesting uh, at some future time for you and I sort of to discuss some of the negative reactions that we faced or that people that we know have faced or that we've heard about. And maybe we could talk about some strategies to mitigate those kind of negative reactions. Certainly, I think that would be a very interesting one. We also touched on it with like the D-Day event and the YouTube historians who sure. went there and was positively surprised. But yeah, that could be a nice episode. Yeah, I think we we talked about it a little bit before in like a politics of reenacting episode. But, uh, you know, t- we, as uh, a lot has changed in the last two years. And uh, I think I think we would have a lot a lot of new stuff to talk about, too. Yeah, I agree. Another thing that someone asked about maybe hearing about in more detail on the podcast is this, um, and I know I've talked about this before, but we have a a bunker out in Western Massachusetts that my reenactment group uses for our events, and we're building a second one out at that site this year. We were out there last weekend, and we made tremendous progress. We've got the frame up. We started building the roof of this thing. It's coming along really well. It's going to be bigger and better than the first one, and... uh, 
I've been getting a lot of specific questions about, okay, how did you build it? And um, I was thinking maybe I could have on as a guest, maybe even like the the landowner or the the people whose idea it originally was. I mean, there are people involved in this project who are significantly more involved in it than I am, who would be able to talk more about some of this detailed stuff. But uh, I think that I think that could be possibly an interesting episode as well. I would actually like that because we have plans of building our own bunker. So it would be nice to get some more details on it. I'm going to have to do another like uh, I've got to do a video of it uh, at some point, like a video walkthrough. I don't, I don't usually post videos anywhere, but uh, we could talk about that too uh, later on. Um, yeah. But I do appreciate the suggestions, guys, and I do appreciate uh, hearing from the listeners. You can always uh, reach out. Also, we have a Discord, and for a long time, I didn't actually have that on my phone, and I only looked at it from time to time when I was at home and sitting at my computer. But um, I've got it on my phone again, or for the first time, really. So um, people, for you Patreon listeners, you can post stuff in the uh, in the Discord, and I'll see it right away. Any ideas that you have or show, show suggestions or whatever, feedback on episodes, I appreciate that a lot. Certainly. Um, for myself, Discord has kind of become my number one social media i um, tend to use that the very most it's a very powerful and good uh software our patreon only discord would be it would be nice to see it uh, more active so hint hint if you're not a patron yet please join us I got added somehow to some like World War II collectible discussion groups on Discord as well, and they're interesting too. I didn't really, I never really knew too much about Discord, uh, but it's cool to see that there's communities on there talking about um, all these different niche hobbies and interests and stuff that I like. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you yeah, know, I, I, I enjoy Discord uh, tremendously. I use it for, um, I have like different Discord servers I'm active in for all my hobbies. All right, that's about uh, all the time we've got for today, I think. Uh, So uh, once again, uh, thanks to the Patreon supporters. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, Please uh, don't be afraid to hit us up with with your comments and suggestions. And uh, to Lasa... One last thing. Oh, you got a last bit. Okay. (laughs) Uh, We also got a new place people can uh, reach out to us, and that is on our email, because we finally created an email as well. So if you want to, you can shoot us an email at therenactorscorner at gmail.com. That's excellent. Yeah, I forgot about that. Cool. Me too. But yeah, there it is. (laughs) Okay. Lasa, everybody, stay safe. I'll see you in the field. See you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Fela Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com, that is german-ww2.com, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.